Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, that is Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far. From the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are still on the third day of Passion Week as Jesus is being questioned by a large group of antagonists made up of chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Herodians, and the Sadducees. Now, the leaders of the temple challenged his authority after he cleansed the temple and judged it. The Pharisees and Herodians asked him a question about uh, paying taxes to see if they could trap him as a traitor or a treasonous rebel. Then the Sadducees asked him a silly question about whether or not we will be married in the afterlife to try to prove that there is no afterlife to the Pharisees. And remember, they all claimed to be religious leaders, and this line of questioning is all taking place inside the temple, a place of worship during the week of Passover. So Jesus was confronting them on their morality in one of the most important weeks in the Jewish calendar as they asked religious, political, and eternal but trivial questions. You can assume they weren't all that focused on God that week. And if we were to judge by what we have been reading about these leaders, we would all conclude that they were all just a lost cause. The corruption was too deep. Now, funny thing is, many people can say that about us at some point or another in our own lives. But consider even down to our own day, to be called a Pharisee, is the most serious accusation. No one wants to be called a Pharisee. It is another way of saying that you are a legalistic hypocrite. Now what we sometimes forget is that not all of the religious leaders of that time would fall under this category. Every once in a while you see a glimmer of hope even among the corrupted leaders of Jesus' day, like in the case of Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night because he wanted to know more about Jesus and his teachings. And now here, Jesus is approached by one of the scribes. See, the scribes were the theologians of their day. They were well equipped for arguments like lawyers. They interpreted the Bible and they were 
well read in many of the uh, ancient writings, such as the writings of the rabbis. Now think of how much of Jesus' teachings may have contradicted the rabbis. Uh, So there was a feud brewing among the scribes and Jesus. But this particular scribe was listening to how Jesus responded to the Sadducees by explaining why they were wrong in believing that there was no resurrection from the dead. And he was satisfied with Jesus' reply. So this scribe wasn't hostile in his approach to Jesus. He wasn't seeking to trap or trick him. But he came with a genuine question because he recognized him as a teacher and he was seeking to learn something. Now this is a lesson in how we ought to appreciate those whom we encounter whom would ask genuine questions from us. Uh, For those of us who have been believers for quite some time and have faced the hostility of the world, at times we can get a bit defensive when someone approaches us with a question not realizing that they just want to know what we believe. And those situations are perfect opportunities to tell them. And so he asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now this question that he asks Jesus must be understood in light of the 613 additional laws found in the writings of the leading rabbis at the time. The rabbis and the scribes would often discuss which commandments were the heaviest, most binding, and most important, and which were light and less important. Uh, You can almost get the impression that this one scribe just wanted a clear summary of the most important commandment out of all these other commandments. He was another burdened soul who didn't know whether to turn right or to turn left. And judging by the language, he wasn't just speaking of the commandments found in the scripture, but he was asking about all of the commandments known to man. He is speaking about morality in general. And although this question may have been genuine, he may have been misled to think that he could measure up to the most important commandment. He wanted to see where he stood, morally speaking. So what was Jesus' answer? Well, it was twofold. And it was a summary of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Though there is what we call natural law, or as our confession calls it, a general equity, Uh, That is a general morality that everyone knows, believer and unbeliever. But God's moral law is the ultimate standard of true morality. Throughout Israel's history, there have been summaries of the most important commandments, uh, such as in the writings of the rabbis, like Rabbi Hillel, who said, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. That sounds much like the golden rule when Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Also, this is a similar response that Jesus gives to the rich young man. But that is just the second table of the law, the last six commandments. Here, Jesus gives us both tables of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which would include the first Four commandments. 
which is the most important of all. First, Jesus answered him by quoting the Old Testament scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we read earlier, known as the Shema. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The scribe, of course, would have known this. It would have hit home. They were required to memorize this from childhood. And Jesus is doing a couple of things here. He is confirming that his teaching is in line with the Old Testament, in case they were wondering, because I'm sure there were some skeptics. Uh, Today, there are many who suggest that what Jesus was teaching was totally different than that of the Old Testament, or that the New Testament is to be considered as a separate book altogether. Some suggest that what Jesus taught was some New Age religion or some brand of Hinduism. But no, Jesus is confirming that he is in fact doctrinally orthodox. That he himself is a Jew, both ethnically and religiously. That he believes in the same God and what he is teaching is a continuation and fulfillment of the Jewish religion. What the Jews have in the Old Testament is not yet fulfilled. But what we have is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why the entire New Testament is about Him. He affirms, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That He is both numerically one, and that He is a unity. If you go back and read Mark, or any of the Gospels for that matter, from the beginning there is a revelation of the Holy Trinity. Throughout, and even more so when you get into the uh, rest of the New Testament letters. But here, Jesus is affirming that God is one in essence, though He is three in persons. He is saying that God is ultimate and the supreme being above all things. And He is not an impersonal God. He is not an unknown God. God is named and He is known. And out of His mercy and love, He reveals Himself to us. Also, He is saying that God is to be our ultimate object of love and worship. He comes first. He is above all things, including ourselves. Now, we tend to flip it. Uh, Many people place the priority of serving people first then we get to know God and who He is in the Scriptures. But it is the other way around. And we're not called to love Him because He has done things for us, but we love Him because of who He is, even if He ordains a life of suffering for us. God in Himself is worthy of love. That's why He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, the heart is the seat of the mind. That is where you find the true person. You can test your heart by testing what it is you desire most. What we are supposed to desire and love first and foremost is God. 
In the mind and the soul are where you find understanding, will, and affections that are expressed in words, works, and gestures. If you want to know what a man loves the most, listen to how he speaks. Judge him by what he does. Because this is where the strength comes in. Your devotion and what you spend your strength and energy on reflects what it is you love. Some people believe you can separate our thoughts and our motives from our actions. But no, the scriptures teach that to love God properly, you must love Him wholly, meaning your whole person must be devoted to God. He is never satisfied with a half love or half devotion. Also notice we are to love Him with our minds. With our minds. Some people believe you can love God with heart and soul, but not with the mind, as if it is disconnected. You find this in Christians who dismiss theology. They say, oh, that is just for the pastor. That's his job. No, according to Scripture, it is the duty of everyone, especially Christians, to know God, the true God, with our minds. To know theology and to know the theology of our Bibles. That's why he gave us the Bible. He didn't give it to just the leaders to read and understand. He gave it to us to get to know him and know his revelation. And it requires that we use the fullness of our minds to know and to love him. And although we are at different levels of understanding, God knows that and calls us within our own circumstances to know him correctly with our minds. This is why it is important to have correct theology. Not because it glorifies God, but also We are loving God in our study of theology. This is why education was important to the reformers, especially John Calvin. Education wasn't important because it led to success the way it is thought of today. Education was important so that we could read, so that we could think, understand, and get to know and love the God of the Bible with our minds and get to know what He created And the way this world works so that we could be of service. So this means in summary, every motive, every thought, every action is required in loving God. Every part of your being was created by God and for God. So that must mean that every part of your being must be devoted to God. And as I said, this love for God is a summary of the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make graven images or idols to worship. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You are to keep the Sabbath day holy. As R.C. Sproul has pointed out, that if this is the most important commandment, then what do you think is the most serious sin? Now, every sin is serious and uh, makes us guilty before God and incurs His judgment. 
But there are sins that are more serious than others, practically speaking. We find an example in the state of the way the church thinks today. Some churches who are heavily influenced by the culture, or they try to be more relevant to the culture, who only speak of cultural issues, place more emphasis on the dangers of pornography than they do on the problem of taking the Lord's name in vain. And taking the Lord's name in vain is riddled throughout our culture. Politicians use it all the time to get our votes. And people ask, well, how do you know that? How do you know their motive? Well, you judge them by how they live the rest of the week. Our entertainment and movies from rated G to rated R riddled with taking the Lord's name in vain. Notice our own hypocrisy. Also think of the way churches and Christians treat the Lord's day. It becomes just like any other day. It is no longer considered holy. It doesn't matter if I gather or not. Those people annoy me anyway. I'll just listen to a sermon online. That'll be my worship. And all of this is rooted in making idols for ourselves and having other gods instead of the one true God. Think of how we allow for the dishonor of God, but we get infuriated when our children dishonor us. Well, because the truth is, none of us have kept this commandment. I haven't kept this commandment for an entire 30 seconds of my entire life. I haven't loved God with my whole heart, soul, and strength. We are often so weak in the things of God. I haven't loved God with all my mind. How many times do you pick up a Bible only to be distracted with other cares? If it wasn't for Jesus who fulfilled this commandment perfectly for us, we would all stand condemned. He loved his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved you and I all the way to the cross. Because this love for God forms the basis for every other love that we have because it is the most important commandment. Without this commandment, you have kept no other commandment. And without this love, you have no other love. We can't separate the love we have for God from the love we have for others. To love others is to love them as God loves them. God is the foundation of our love. In fact, God is love, as it says in 1 John 4. He gave us the definition of love because it comes directly and only from Him. So now Jesus doesn't just give him the first commandment, but he also gives him the second most important commandment. He quotes scripture again. This is an example for us as Jesus relied on the word of God for the answers. He quotes Leviticus 19. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we are not only to love God, but we are also to love those whom he loves. And get this, we are to love them as we love ourselves. You're probably asking yourself, well, didn't Jesus say you are to deny yourself and follow me? Is there a contradiction? No. 
To deny yourself doesn't mean you hate yourself. You still feed yourself, clothe yourself, care for yourselves, uh, and you enjoy and use what God has given you. What he meant was that he is to be most important in our lives and we are to follow him at all costs. It, It was an issue of priority. But that doesn't mean we stop loving ourselves or our neighbors. Now the question we often ask is, what is love? Love is not just this fuzzy uh, emotion that uh, people tend to describe love. It's not just emotions, but there are actions involved. Uh, I've quoted this passage many times before, and I'll quote it again in one of the most famous wedding verses that has nothing to do with weddings. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Today we have people who teach that love is supporting someone in whatever they do. Even our children. Whatever they choose to be. But no, it says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. So love has to be truthful first and foremost. It is to say, this is the truth about your situation, and I'm going to stand here. But also, on the flip side, it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So yes, you're standing for the truth, but at the same time, you will be there with them to endure it, And to say, I'll be here ready and willing to forgive you once you turn around. And Jesus completes his teaching by saying, there is no other commandment greater than these. Why? Because they summarize God's commandments. And we are all bound to them all. So if we were to summarize what the greatest commandment is, it is to love. To love God and to love neighbor. As Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. The Ten Commandments was given to us to show us how to love and what love looks like. You can't love your neighbor and at the same time try to kill him, lie to him, or steal from him. We can't love God and at the same time acknowledge and or love other gods. What was the scribe's response? He pretty much says, Ditto. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. Hear that? He tacks on the theology of the first commandment. There is no other God besides this God of the Bible. And to love him with all our heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a pretty good response. He even added that last part himself. Maybe he was thinking of 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Paul would affirm what the scribe adds by saying, if I give away all I have, And I deliver up my body to be burned as a sacrifice. But have no love, I gain nothing. 
Again, this is the true standard of God's law. He said, it is more important than the sacrificial system that was necessary to atone for their sins. Now, he was not saying at all that the sacrifices that God called his people to offer were no longer valid. He was saying that without love for God and his people, these rituals mean nothing. And that's the equivalent today to our worship. We can turn church and the sacrifice of worship into a ritual where we come to church with no love for God or for his people. That doesn't mean we stop coming to church. That doesn't mean we get rid of the ritual. The ritual is still valid. The problem is with the heart. It means we need to examine our hearts. Just think of what was going on in the temple at that time, where they offered their sacrifices. They allowed merchants to set up shop and turn the temple into a place where people can enter and make a profit. They offered sacrifices while ignoring God's commandments. Also think of how they were plotting to kill Jesus all this time. They were neither loving God nor loving their neighbor. But there is one who did not ignore God's commandments. He was standing right in front of the scribe. And in the near future, he will fulfill and put away all the temple offerings and sacrifices by the sacrifice of his own temple, his own body on the cross for the sake of love. Now this scribe's response was so good that Jesus commends him. He said in a way, You are almost a disciple. You are beginning to see. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now wait a minute. Notice he didn't say you are in the kingdom of God. He says you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're almost there. You have the wording and the knowledge down about the kingdom's ethics, but you're still not in. Why? How do you get in? Can't I just keep these commandments and get a ticket into the kingdom? Well, no, you can't. As Paul says, the law is good, the law is spiritual. But the law also kills. It cannot save you. Keeping it does not save you. Because you can never keep it perfectly. You see, he was beginning to see, just as many see, and know the law. And they try to keep the law, but they don't believe the gospel. That's close, but no cigar. Now we see how the law comes before the gospel. We are instructed by the law before we come to know the gospel. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The way into the kingdom is not by keeping these commandments. The way into the kingdom was standing right in front of him. But the leaders of Jesus' day were rejecting the king of the kingdom. 
He didn't just need a teacher to teach him the way in. He needed a savior to place him into the kingdom of God. He was close as he was standing right next to him and conversing with him. But the question is, has he received him as the king of the kingdom and his savior? He needed to be born again and to have eyes to see his king. This is how close we all can get near the kingdom and yet never enter in. At this point, they should have all felt conviction and received Jesus as their Messiah. But I believe they felt more embarrassed than they felt conviction. It says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In other words, Jesus won the debate. He has silenced the leaders because they couldn't get him with all of these questions. He he took everything they had given him and he responded clearly and biblically and at the same time exposing them to their errors. If we ever want to learn how to win a debate, we can study Jesus' response. So from now on, they will not try to trap him. They will eventually put him on trial based on false testimony and ultimately charge him with blasphemy and put him to death. Now, our reaction to what Jesus says should be threefold, and it is summarized in our uh, confession of faith in chapter 19, section 6. We ought to agree with him that these are the two greatest commandments summarizing our duty to God and all people are bound to them. Also, this ought to convict us of our own sinfulness and how we have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And out of care for our own souls, this ought to drive us to Christ for salvation and lead us to ask ourselves, am I in the kingdom? You don't want to be just close to the kingdom. You want to be in the kingdom. And the only way into the kingdom is by placing your faith in this Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not exactly sure what happened to the scribe, whether he continued with the other scribes in their unbelief or if he began to follow Jesus. I guess there's no way to know. But what we do know is that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. And once we are in, he gives us new life. He gives us a new way to walk. And we are now seeking to obey his commands, not as a ticket to get in, but out of love for our Savior. He gives us his law, the two greatest commandments, as a rule for our lives. Because greater than any sacrifice we can make, Christians are given a new commandment, which is not really new at all, but it is old to love Although we will never keep it perfectly, but that is why we have a perfect and loving mediator. Thanks be to God and amen.